0: Media presents Inside the Crime Files
1: with Anne-Marie Schubert. This case touched me deeply because of who Jennifer was. She was a young lady that um, had had fairly low self-esteem, but a big heart.
0: Her hair was in front of her face. She had her glasses on. There was a rope that she was tied to the rafter with. That the tail of the rope was inside her sweater.
1: It was the pathologist who also found it unusual that she had a she had broken bones in her neck. The astrologist saw um, the control and and that almost forced, was foreseeing what would occur. We were looking at the trace evidence. So did the inference lead to that she was murdered? Or did this trace evidence lead to that she committed suicide? Most prosecutors say they have one case that they will never, ever forget. And I I have to say this is one of those cases.
2: I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olaz Media in San
0: Diego, California.
2: Welcome to Inside Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert podcast. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and the prosecution of some of the most notorious and horrific criminal cases perhaps in California history. This podcast also examines some of the most interesting cases that we've seen and the ways in which those cases were solved. Today, we're going to talk about a case that I find to be fascinating. Was this a murder or was this a suicide? My guests are recently retired Deputy District Attorney, Ruanne Dozier, and I would call her renowned Forensic expert, <laughs> Faye Springer from our crime lab. And I just want to say welcome, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. So let me start, first of all, um, for the listeners, I'm going to start off with Ru-Ann. Um, Rue, if you can tell everybody kind of a little bit about yourself, your career, the types of cases perhaps that you focused in on in your illustrious career.
1: <laughs> sure. So I have been a prosecutor for 32 years, uh, as Amri said, recently retired and I began focusing on domestic violence cases. I probably spent at least 10 years um, prosecuting domestic violence cases. And as part of those, in those years, I um, actually had several domestic violence homicides. Um, in domestic violence, we're always looking at, you know, how can we make sure that um, the couple doesn't end up, one of them killing the other? How can we help the victim escape the domestic violence situation? So um, in looking at those homicides, we we look at, you know, what was going on in this relationship and how could this have been prevented? So um, the case we're going to talk about today is probably, as most prosecutors say, they have one case that they will never, ever forget. And I, I have to say, this is one of those cases. Um, I got to know Jennifer after her death, meaning I got into her head, I read all of her diary entries, etc. We'll be talking about that later. Um, but this is one of those cases that that will stick with me, I'm sure, for the rest of my life.
2: All right, great. And Faye, um, I think I learned about you before I actually met you by reading appellate court cases about, you know, scientific advances in forensics. And so maybe you can kind of tell the listeners about your career and, and what your expertise is in.
0: Well, I've been doing forensics for 54 years, 52 years, I guess. And uh, I think the reason that you probably read about some of my cases in appellate hearing is because I kind of grew up with the science itself. You know, things like even DNA, you know, in the early days it was typing for ABO. And so as the technology developed... uh, the challenges developed in almost every field of, uh, of forensic science from biological evidence to, to DNA and from uh, microscopic evidence to the sophisticated instrumentation that we use to try to individualize even microscopic evidence. So, um, it, you know, it part is it, it was pretty cool being part of that development and I've seen a lot of changes and I, I kind of found my niche after several years. And I loved using the microscopes and doing the unseen evidence, the, the trace evidence that nobody else could really do other than the few of us that had that kind of training.
2: So one of the things that, you know, I think the listeners often know is that we oftentimes talk about DNA on this yeah. podcast, which, you know, is my passion and my love. Mm-hmm. But what I found fascinating from you, Faye, And this case, which we're going to talk about, is this was not about DNA at all. This is about what we call trace evidence. And, you know, I learned probably 30 years ago about this concept called Locard's principle. Um, You probably taught it to me, Faye. But what (laughs) tell, maybe tell the listeners, because it is rooted in this, the trace evidence analysis. Am I right saying that it's kind of rooted in that principle?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the principle behind looking at trace evidence. So the idea is that if you touch something or you have contact with something or you rub against something, that whatever that material is, will shed uh, either part of the material itself or whatever's on that material and you'd pick it up on your clothing or your body or your hands. And, and um, so that's kind of the, the basis of the Locard theory is that everything leaves traces and those things can transfer from object to object. So in trace evidence, that's what we look at. Um so when they're you know DNA isn't answering the question or firearms evidence isn't answering the questions, we can go in and look and see if there's some room to look at trace evidence to try to answer the the specific question that's being asked in a case.
2: you know, maybe the listener is an example of different types of trace evidence that you listen, I know you're an expert in a lot of things <laughs> of these types of trace, but I think it's fascinating if you can kind of tell them the types of trace evidence that can be analyzed and what you can do with it.
0: Well, the types of trace evidence that we deal with on kind of a daily basis is uh, hair evidence, fiber evidence, glass evidence, paint transfers, like in hit and runs, or in this case, contact from paint that uh, is flaking, soil evidence. If you walk into a certain area, you might pick up soil on your shoes, and that could be compared, um, you know, same with burial sites. You can look at soil from the different layers um, of the grave to see that matches something on a shovel or in a car. And on the shoes. On the shoes. Um, and plant, plant material too, because, you know, plants decompose, they pollinate, and they grow again. So all of that leaves traces that can be picked up. The usual questions are, is it significant? Right, And that's, that's the real issue that we look at. Is it unique enough? Is it significant? And does it answer the question in the case?
2: And I would imagine, Rue, that in a lot of these cases, especially the one we're about to talk about, it's really kind of circumstantial evidence. Yes,
1: a lot of cases are c- circumstantial evidence. What do we see at the crime scene? What do we see on the victim's body? What do we find in the, c- the victim's car? Um, and what inferences can we draw from that evidence? Um, and as you mentioned, the kind of the title of this is, was this murder or was this suicide? We were looking at the trace evidence um, that we'll talk about later and look and having to go down both those paths. So did the inference lead to that she was murdered or did this trace evidence, uh, did those inferences lead to that she committed suicide?
2: Okay. So you started off by telling us her name was Jennifer. What was the name of the person you were prosecuting?
1: His name uh, is Keir, Kier Anderson. Okay.
2: And just maybe just tell the listeners kind of the relationship they had kind of, you know, one of the things I learned a long time ago is what was, what was the 72 hours leading up to her death, right? right? So she's obviously found deceased, correct? Correct. Okay. So maybe just explain to the listeners kind of, kind of what their
1: relationship was like and how we got to this point that there was a homicide investigation. So Kira and Jennifer had been together almost 10 years. Uh, They'd married um, they've been married together, seven, so dating and then married. Um, they had two children, um, two girls, one was four and one was 18 months old. Um, Kier was older than Jennifer. And so he had, um, he had an influence over her cause she was young and impressionable when they met. And so, um, over time, he had decided to experiment sexual with sexuality but in their sex life, um, he was bisexual. Jennifer knew that and Jennifer was comfortable with that. So Curia had always wanted to have a, another man enter their relationship um, and to develop a threesome. And so it eventually did occur. Um, I'm going to refer to Jay is was the third. Uh, the third guy and third person in the relationship. And Jay had happened to be uh, friends with both of them, going through some hard times himself. And Kier asked him if he was interested in it, in exploring, um, having sex with both he and Jennifer. So Jay moved in with Kier and Jennifer and they had a sexual relationship for about two to three weeks. Um, listeners might wonder, how did we know all of this? <laughs> well, Kier was a prolific um diary, diarist, if you will, person who wrote down everything. Kier. Kier was. Okay. And so um we did find all of his journal entries, if you will, that discussed the sexual relationship that the three of them had and not only that, but like emotionally, how Keir was feeling about this situation. He was quite pleased. In these writings, we determined he was pleased with the way it was going. Um, But what developed is that Jennifer started having feelings for Jay. So Kier would find that she would sneak off with Jay and the two of them, Jennifer and Jay, would be together leaving Kier out of the mix. So Kier began to feel left out, if you will. Um, Things kind of boiled up. And there was some arguing arguing about that fact. And Jay ended up saying, "I can't deal with this. I'm out." So he leaves and moves out of here. And Jennifer's home. Well, Jennifer began to feel be, was very uh, she missed Jay because Jay had provided her with some emotional uh, support that she didn't get from here. So um, she wanted to continue to see Jay. And as in domestic violence situations, um, this was making a very controlling Keir, I'll refer to him as being very controlling, quite upset. Um, So what, moving forward, um, that jealousy, that on Keir's part, that feeling of abandonment, that his wife was abandoning him for another man, um, led to eventually killing um, Jennifer. And I, we can go into details later about this, the hours moving up to that right. point in time.
2: So y- your experience with domestic violence, and I've heard this phrase before, what they call lethality factors. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe kind of explain what is that? And did that play, were there signs here that those factors were present?
1: Well, the biggest lethality that that we see is in a domestic violence relationship is that when, and I'll just refer to the female when the female part of the relationship wants to leave and takes steps toward leaving, that is when that that female is in the most danger of being killed by her partner, uh, because the partner, the domestic violence abuser, is very is controlling, wants to control his partner and when he starts to lose control of that partner that is when um, a murder can take place and um just kind of as a side note domestic why I found domestic violence fascinating is it crosses all socioeconomic um folks so um we've had you know I've prosecuted doctors I've prosecuted lawyers so it's just it's the type of person it's that they just snap. At a certain point, when they feel they've completely lost control.
2: So, kind of lead us up. This this incident happened in February of my memory's right, two thousand six. Kind of what led up, and tell us kind of tell us about how she was found.
1: All right. So, as I mentioned earlier, um, Jennifer was upset that Jay had left um, the home, and um, actually, Kier had over the days that went by, and it was about. Three weeks. Um, this happened. She was killed about three weeks after Jay moved out. Um, Kier forbade her from communicating with Jay. And we know that because it was, again, in his journaling. Um, he also had written up a covenant of marriage and we found that on the computer where he wanted her to sign this covenant saying that she acknowledged Kier was her husband. She would not cheat on him. She would not have sex with anybody else but her husband, et cetera. So Jennifer was beginning to feel very constricted and uh, essentially being suffocated emotionally. Um, We know this because we talked with her friends and her family. And she was very, at at first, conflicted about what she going to do. Is she going to stay with Kier because they were obviously married and they have these two children, or is she going to leave Kier for Jay? Um, Jennifer was into astrology. And so to solve this question or help her work through it in her mind, she went to see an astrologist and this particular astrologist tape recorded the session. And we got that tape. Um, and in that tape, Uh, the astrologist says in looking at all of the stars and how they lined up. And I'm no astrologist, so I can't really explain how it works. But uh, in looking at all of the stars and everything, she said that Jay was the one that um, that Jennifer needed to stick with Um, on the night that she was killed. um, Kira was aware that she had gone to see this astrologist. So Jennifer's on the phone with her mother And talking with her mother just about her day and how things had been going, how things had gone. And we know she had just come home from work because she she worked at a uh, church and she would do the um, the the drops at the bank. And we had the bank surveillance showing when she did the drop at the end of the day. So we knew we had a timeline going on. So she is back at home and she's talking to her mother right after she got home from work. And the mother says she hears here come into the bedroom. We believe she was in the bedroom during this conversation. And here says, where's the tape? Um, Referring to the astrology tape. Uh, Let's see. The mother says she heard the two of them arguing over this tape. And then the phone goes dead. So mom um, tries to call back and just was getting either her voicemail or the phone was just dropping. She couldn't get through um, to Jennifer. So Jennifer's father tried to call. They waited a couple of hours. And then uh, Jennifer's father called the police and asked for a welfare check. Um, A welfare check was done at about 1030 that night. And the officers went to the house here, answered the door. Um, they said, we need to come in. We're doing a welfare check. And and they asked here where Jennifer was. And he said, we got into an argument and she stormed out of here. Um, and it actually it was a really bad storm that, that night with pouring down rain. Um, the officers still went in and looked for Jennifer, went into the home, uh, actually opened up the garage. The garage was full. They were kind of pack rats full from the, the ground to the ceiling. And they just kind of poked their heads in and looked around and didn't see anything. Uh, and they left. So the parents Jennifer's parents the next morning um, were very concerned because they could not get a hold of Jennifer. So they they went over to the house and they had keys to the house. Uh, At this point, Kier had already left for work. They go into the house and the mother sees Jennifer's coat um, on the coat rack and inside the pocket where it was her phone and her keys. And immediately mother knew there was something wrong that she would not have left her phone or her keys in the, her coat pocket and she would have been wearing the coat in this horrible rainstorm. So they called the police again and at this, the police came out and uh, the, one particular officer did a moral, more thorough search of the garage and basically started pitching boxes here, there and everywhere to move from the where the kitchen door goes into the garage and then moving forward toward the wool top and that is where he found jennifer hanging from the rafter
2: just a matter of process once once the body's found it's a homicide investigation this is sacramento police department right correct so the normal course of events is then she's taken down and she's taken in for her autopsy right correct okay okay let me ask you this um you worked with our crime lab for many, many years. Were you, when did you get involved in this case?
0: Um, I first was, uh, I first got knowledge of it, I think, during the autopsy. Okay. Because during the autopsy, the investigator calls and says, you know, there's this debris on the victim's skin and on her buttocks. And uh, it looks like the autopsy surgeon said it looks like a plant material. And so I probably should go out back out there and pick up plant material. And I think they were suspicious right at the beginning right. because what was explained to me on the phone was her f- hair was in front of her face. She had her glasses on. There was a rope that she was tied to the rafter with that, the tail of the rope was inside her sweater. So the end of the
2: rope was tucked in the
0: sweater. Yeah, inside the sweater, and um, then came back out at the bottom of the sweater. And the, the pathologist was saying this did not look like a hanging.
2: So how was she, Then um, maybe, Rue, you can answer mm-hmm. either one of you, but how, how when she was found hung from the rafters,
1: closed, unclosed, how was she dressed? She was clothed, and as Faye said, the tail of the noose was inside of her sweater. It was a cardigan sweater, so button-up sweater. Mm-hmm. Um, she was wearing pants that, did, that had an elastic waistband. Yes. And her socks, she was wearing socks, and her socks, I don't remember if Faye had one or two, but at least one was upside down, meaning the heel was on the top of the foot. Yeah. And as Faye mentioned, her hair was she had very long hair, um, and her hair was like in front of her face, and then the glasses were put on like over the hair.
0: Well, I think it was under. The hair came over. Right, might have been both, but, but
1: middle of both. Yeah,
0: but when you look at the photographs, the hair is you can't see the glasses until you kind of move it aside.
1: So you know, kind of getting back to our theme, uh, or not our theme, but the truth was: was this suicide or was this murder? Um, Faye was the one who pointed out when we were looking at the CSI photos that, wait a minute, the tail is in between, underneath her sweater. So if she had really committed suicide, how on earth did it get underneath the sweater? Mm -hmm. Because she would have, yeah, she tied the noose. Right. And then the tail gets tucked under the sweater. That just didn't make sense.
0: Well, it was under the sweater in the back, not in the front. So, and you could see in the photographs that she was leaning up against a table saw. So it came out of the bottom of her sweater, and then it was outside the pants she was wearing. Okay, And you could see that in the photographs. And then the socks in the photographs looked like they were upside down, but I could confirm that once um, the socks came into the laboratory.
2: Okay, so she has a pair of pants on. You get called because in the autopsy, she appears to have plant material on her buttocks, right? Correct. Not on the pants, but on the actual skin. Right. Okay. So what else kind of were you looking at ultimately in the laboratory? Did you go back out to the scene?
0: Yeah. So when they called and asked how to pick up or collect plant material, I said, I better look at it first. Right. So I don't know whether you're going to be picking up plant material from trees or bushes or grass or flowers or whatever. So they sent the, they brought the kid up right away. And I looked at it. Well, yeah, there were, there were pieces of leaves and and soil and paint and some other things on there too. And I said, well, I better go with you. Stuck to her buttocks. Yeah. Okay. Well, they had been removed right. at that point. But because a pathologist had removed it. And so they were going to get a warrant then. And, and that was the first time I went out to the scene. Okay.
2: So what, maybe kind of just walk us through, like, what you, what'd you do at the scene? What would you collect? And then what would you analyze?
0: Well, um, I collected everything that I thought might be on her body that might be relevant as to where she might have been killed. Right. Um, my feeling was she was redressed um and that the the particles on her skin and her underwear were more important than what was on the outside of her clothing that she was wearing when she was hung. She lived there, right? You know, so that right. that wasn't as relevant in terms of answering a question about what the sequence of events were. Right. So anything that even though I knew there was paint and that material. I collected other things that I thought could be there if she was in the garage, if she was in the backyard. Because um, at, at this point, we don't know from the time she died where she might have been before she was hung. Okay. And uh, we knew that there was supposedly a fight, and she had lots of bruising on her body. You know, so so we looked at there was a like a spa in the back. We collected samples from that. Collected samples from any of the paths from the back of the house to the front of the house and the side of the house. Collected the plant material. Um, anything that, you know, was crumbly because this was plants, material that had come from like fallen leaves and they were decomposing. Okay. And then there was some, eventually some like plastic material, you know, blue tarp plastic type material. And uh, so we had to, Actually, go back and make sure that we got what we needed to actually say whether or not it occurred in the back or the front or on the side yards. Yards, yeah. So we went twice. Okay. Um, You know, the initial time to confirm the type of material was correct. And I think. The original paint that we picked up was one layer and it was a two layer paint on the on the victim's bodies. I wanted to go out and get some additional samples in addition to to what we'd already had. So
2: So let's start with the paint though. So she's got paint on her buttocks and then Mm -hmm. were you able to associate that paint to someplace in the house? Yes. Where was that? The garage. Okay. The garage floor. So at some point she's obviously on the floor. Right. And it's on her buttocks underneath the underwear. Okay. So. so that's the other question I was going to ask you, Al. So Ruan, she's found hung. She's got a sweater on. The tail is underneath the sweater. She's got a pair of pants. She's got a sock that's on backwards. Um,
1: And then she's obviously, she's got a pair of underwear, right? Correct. Yeah. So the the, the they looked at the underwear mm-hmm. and what was interesting about the underwear is that it was, um, and Faye, you can elaborate. If I recall, what you explained is that it was folded in a way the underwear had kind of been so the markings on the underwear on the buttocks part of the underwear um, was the dirty and the the dirty markings were not like a a round circle it was they were full like the fabric had been folded so we were starting to develop this theories that she had been dragged so it once he killed her strangled her Um, And then he was dragging her as he was dragging her, the underwear um, kind of got scrunched up, if you will, a little bit. Um, Also, they had detected some urine on the underwear, but not on the pants. And why is that significant? Uh, Because what happens to people who are strangled is often they lose control of their bladder or their valves. And so we saw they found... um, underwear i'm sorry urine on the underwear but not on the pants so which further supported that she had been dressed after she was murdered it
0: wasn't a little urine it was a considerable amount and it was from the crotch area to the buttocks area so it looked like she was laying down at the time okay and uh it was the quantity was enough that if she had been wearing the pants that she was found in it should also been uh, stained with urine and there was no urine in the crotch of the, the purple pants she was wearing.
2: Okay. You mentioned the autopsy and um, that she had bruises. Mm-hmm. Um, Ruan, you've done lots of strangulation. Ruan, I mean, Faye, uh, you've seen strangulation cases. Were there signs? Um, okay, so we've got her hung by a noose, but are there different kinds of injuries you might expect to see from what we call manual strangulation, meaning that they use their hands? So was there things on her body that was more consistent with being strangled by
1: somebody's hands versus suicide? Yes. So that is, you know, as you you talked about a timeline after a murder and what happens to the body when it's removed from the scene, it goes to the coroner's office for an autopsy. It was the pathologist who not only found the debris on um, the buttocks, um, but also found it unusual that she had a, she had broken bones in her neck, specifically the hyoid and the thyroid bones were broken. And you do, the pathologist explained to me, you do not find that in a, a regular hanging. Mm. Um, there's only certain circumstances where you would expect to find broken bones in somebody who has hung themselves. And this was not one of those circumstances. So so not only did she have the she had the broken Um, Bones in her neck, but she also had what's called petechiae. Petechiae is where if somebody is strangled and they're gasping for air, blood vessels in their eyes will burst. And she had significant petechiae in both eyes. So the pathologist was very suspicious that this uh, was uh, not a hanging because, or a suicide, I'm sorry, because you would not expect to see the amount of petechiae it was found. Um, in addition, as you've mentioned, the bruising, the bruising showed w- to the pathologist that there had been a struggle because she had significant bruising on her legs as if she had been while being strangled. She was trying to kick, w- kick him and fight back. Um, we had to look at, okay, if she really hung herself again, we're going back to, was this murder or was it suicide? How did she get the bruises on her legs if it was suicide? Right. How did she self-inflicted something? Exactly.
2: So, Okay, so, Faye, you mentioned the paint. You looked at the
1: paint. You
2: also looked at the plant material, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. What did you ultimately figure out from that? You took some plant material from the yard. Mm -hmm. What was your ultimate opinion when you were comparing all that?
0: Well, the leaf fragments were consistent with uh, the, the tree that was out front. So it had lost its leaves. It's wintertime. And uh, so there are a bunch of decomposing leaf fragments around the yard. I mean, it's not significant in terms of putting her at the house. Right. She she lives there. So what's significant is where they're located on her body. Okay. So how did they get there? So I think the the theories that we looked at was um, that she was dressed only in her bra and her underwear at the time of the, the murder case because her bra also had a small blood stain on it that was not on the sweater.
2: Oh, interesting. So,
0: um, And we think maybe um, that at some point she winds up in the garage on the floor in her underwear and her bra and the laundry's out there, her washing machine and uh, dryer's out there in the garage. And we thought the clothing probably came from the uh, laundry, because the clothing was dirty. The socks were dirty, the pants were d- was dirty, and the sweater was pretty dirty. So,
2: so, so there was one other thing that I thought interesting when I was kind of reading about the case is that in in, a, in the world of homicide, there's what's called pre-mortem injuries that you can have, like what, what happened before she died mm-hmm. and post-mortem injuries. And am I right, on that there was some evidence that she had a post-mortem injury on her hand Remember that? Like she had scratched. Well, that no blood had come out of this injury.
1: Right. And, um, that we were thinking that while he, she was being manually strangled, that she would, she was pulling it, it at his hands with her hands. Okay. And maybe that's how she suffered this, this scratch. Okay. Um, we also were looking at the ligature marks on her neck. Um, We were looking to see, and, and, you know, because of the autopsy, they take lots of photographs. We were looking to see if we could find any um, fingerprints.
2: crescent shaped.
1: Yes. And if I recall, I believe there was one on um, her jaw. There were scratches on her. That's right. There were scratches. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask about um, the husband,
2: who's the suspect here. I mean, what was his claim? What was his, you know, he went to trial, but obviously he's interviewed at some point before this, um, am I right, from
1: law enforcement, right? Yes. What was his defense? What? Was um, his well, his, <laughs> he stuck to his claim that she, they had gotten in a fight and she left and she, he didn't see her again. And so wasn't me. Mm-hmm. That was his defense. Did he was end up me.
2: testifying at the trial at all? He
1: did not. And the reason he didn't is because I played his entire interview. And, you know, so his defense was, uh, I needed to do that for a timeline. And so his defense was already in front of the jury. <laughs> so in terms of
2: this so it goes to trial. Um, you kind of talked, Ruanne, about how you kind of had to learn about Jennifer, obviously, after she was dead, but. Is that something that comes into evidence? Is the jury listening or do they get to hear kind of what led
1: up to this? Yes. So like I said earlier, um, here was prolific head journaling. And Jennifer also kept a diary, which we located. Um, so it was we were fortunate in that we could get into her state of mind, um, what was go- going on during this th- three-week period um, where she was very conflicted about whether she should stay or whether she should um, uh, go off with Jay. Uh, and we, as I mentioned earlier, we had the astrologist tape at journaling and Jennifer also kept a diary, which we located. Um, so it was, we were fortunate and that we could get into her state of mind Um, what was going on during this three week period um, where she was very conflicted about whether she should stay or whether she should um, uh, go off with Jay. Uh, And we, as I mentioned earlier, we had the astrologist tape. So we were able to, I listened to the astrology tape and I could hear Jennifer's voice and, and the astrologist and I could you know, I, I listened to her questions that she would ask the astrologist. And she, you know, was very conflicted in her conversation with the astrologist. And at one point, it was very eerie. The astrologist said, uh, as, as Jennifer, well, let me, let me get the backdrop. As Jennifer was describing her relationship with Keir and how he was very controlling and how he had wanted her to sign this covenant that I mentioned earlier, the astrologist said, you know, he's slowly killing you and that was just very very eerie to me that that the astrologist saw um the control and and that almost forced, was foreseeing what would occur
2: how was that astrology session like the day of the killing or the day before day before how oh. I remember mm-hmm. years ago having a domestic violence murder case where the victim had called 911 in advance and said, my boyfriend's going to kill me. <laughs> and some of this, this, the whole point to me is on some of these domestic violence cases, there's almost just like we talked about lethality. That's like the factors that lead up to someone potentially being killed. And those factors
1: were present here. They were. Um, and bringing up lethality factors, it's important for your, the listeners to know that one of those lethality factors is strangulation. So even in, you know, in a domestic violence relationship where the perpetrator not only hits, but strangles, that's a, that's something we look at as lethality for potentially this person being oh, killed sorry. in the future. Um, and, and people might ask or wonder, was there any domestic violence in Jennifer and Keir's relationship prior to this? There wasn't any physical, um, that we knew of. So the family didn't know of any physical and altercations or Jennifer never uh, journaled about any of uh, any physical violence towards her. But the emotional abuse was rampant.
2: OK, I mean, in some ways, I mean, you in your career with DV, a lot of abuse happens over years. Right. Physical, right. emotional, mental. This one, obviously, the ultimately the homicide, it's in what three weeks.
1: Correct. It just snowballed. I mean, I would say the emotional abuse, based on all of my readings of her journal, her diaries and of his journals, the emotional abuse had been going on for a while. He was very controlling. Like I said earlier, he was older than she was. He wanted to control what she did. And so she was very passive, docile, um, and put up with it. It didn't seem to bother her until. Jay enters into the situation right. and she has sees feelings. what a, has feelings for him and sees him treat or, or experiences Jay treating her much differently, much kinder, much more loving, much more supportive of her emotionally. and I, I think that's what really caused her to pause and reflect, wait a minute, there's another way I can live my life right. Did she just curious, did she sign the covenant? She did. oh wow.
0: Interesting. Yes.
2: Um, let me ask you this, face. So you went out to the scene a couple times. You collect mm-hmm. a lot of evidence. How much, just so people understand the amount of work that goes into this, how many How many hours or how much time did it take for you to, like, analyze all this stuff, write a report? You know? Months, probably, or a
0: month total. You know, you don't work 100% of the time right. when you're in an eight-hour day. But uh, these cases tend to drag on, so you know, it comes in stages like the first part was identifying the plant and the paint and making sure that we were on track as far as where they came from and what it meant. right. And then at uh, some point after that, you get I got to look at his that uh, Keir's statements. So you know, he said there was a fight, The fight was in the backyard by the spa. And uh, so then what we do is we look at his statements and see that if there's any physical evidence that might support that. Okay. So that was the reason, or one of the reasons for going back a second time for the search warrant, uh, because now we have the statement and we can pick up materials from these different areas that he describes as where the fight occurred. And
2: any evidence that there was a fight, physical evidence, you know, on on the pants or anything to show there was a fight in the backyard? No. So that's what we went out to do.
0: Uh, We had nothing that indicated that anything happened in the backyard. The only physical evidence that was on her body either came from the garage or the side of the house by by where the garage door opens to a sidewalk. And then there was some, like a decomposing tarp and some plant material that matched some of the plant material on the underwear, not on the buttocks, but on the underwear. And uh, so it it supported her being in that position or in that area, so um, at some point, point, you know, and at least um, we don't know if, you know, he probably had to take her to the front of the garage in order to hang her, because the garage was so full of, of stuff, okay? So that's what we think happened is she was in the back of the garage first, and then was taken around the, uh, the side yard and up to the front. And the garage door was open, and she was hanged.
2: Okay. So, Rue, this goes to trial. He claims she just wandered off. Who killed her? It? Yeah. I mean, no, yeah. you don't. The you mystery know, man. He, the mystery man came in and killed her, his wife, and hung her up. Um, mm-hmm. Fair to say that this was pretty much 100% circumstantial evidence case. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It was 100
1: percent circumstantial.
2: So when you so Faye testifies, right, as an expert witness. Yeah. Amongst many other people. Did you have to bring in Jay? Uh, we did. Okay.
1: I had to bring in Jay to have him set the scene to establish the motive. Now, as in as you know, Amory and homicide prosecutions, we don't have to prove motive, but in this case, motive was huge for us. And so, yes, Jay was an important part of showing motive on Kier's part, because he, he could talk about Kier's uh, feelings about him leaving a relationship. Okay.
2: Faye testified as an expert, and then what what was ultimately, did you testify what your findings were? Did you give an expert opinion?
0: I gave uh, an opinion that she was redressed um, after she was hung. Okay. And it was based on, um, like, four factors, the rope being inside the sweater, the uh, socks being on upside down, the blood on the bra being um, not on the sweater, and then the debris and condition of the underwear, the urine the stains that were on the underwear that were not present inside the pants. I think what's
2: interesting, and and Ru, you mentioned this, you know, when the cops rolled up, and she's found everybody's alarms go off this doesn't seem right mm-hmm. but as a prosecutor or as a forensic scientist you have to still prove it right it's not just saying something doesn't look right here it's these steps that you guys took ultimately and then how did you argue this ultimately what was your basic argument to the jury
1: well um i focused on a lot on his motive and how um he was starting to unravel because he was losing control of um, Jennifer, um, we I had the parents testify. So we I approached in my closing argument it, it, as a timeline. I had a timeline set up. So you know we know that they're that he was upset about the astrology tape. Uh, the jury heard that astrology tape. Mm-hmm. So they got to hear Jennifer's voice. You know post mortem. I mean after she died, they got to hear her voice. Um, and then with obviously today's testimony uh the sequence sequence of events and that the strangulation and the killing happened out on the back patio uh that she was then dragged either through the house into the garage and placed on the floor because how else is she going to get the um very unique paint chips Mm -hmm. and I say they were unique because they they were either two or three layers Mm -hmm. of different colored paint Mm -hmm. and that was the only place correct me if I'm wrong Faye that was the only place in the home where that paint was located Mm -hmm. and then um we I argued how physically he would not have been able to pull her up and over all of the junk that was in the garage that he had to have gone out the side dragged her out the side pedestrian door which is where the um decomposed tarp particles landed on her underwear. And then he had to drag her to the front and roll up the garage door and pull her inside. Um, so it was a combination of the motive that he was very, very angry and he, and that she had made up her mind that she was going to leave him because that was in the astrology tape as well. Um, in addition, I had several of her girlfriends testify uh, because her state of mind was very important. Right. Was she just, you know, again, was it murder or was it suicide? Was she just in a suicidal state in the uh, days and hours leading up to murder? No, she actually, one of her girlfriends testified she she appeared, her emotional state on the day of the killing was one of relief, that she was feeling emboldened. If like you like she will. finally made up her mind, like she finally made up her mind, and she was going to do what she needed to do. Um, and so focusing a lot on both her state of mind, his state of mind, and then obviously the circumstantial evidence.
0: And I think also with the circumstantial evidence, it's you can always explain one thing, right? You know, maybe the rope might be a little odd, right? But you know, putting Australia the pieces together, yeah, and the socks upside down. You know, most people don't wear their socks upside down, but if she was in a hurry, you know, they could always have an explanation, but you put everything together, it just didn't make any other, any sense other than she was dressed after she was hung
2: in there for, you know. I remember when I was a baby lawyer with Marianne and I both started out together in 1990, <laughs> and um, we both worked in the Bay Area, and there was the earthquake in San Francisco, and if listeners remember, it was a big deal. 1989, mm-hmm. Bay Bridge collapsed, there was fires and all that. And I remember, I'm, I'm reminded by what you say, Faye, is that you can say that the Bay Bridge collapsed because of some structural default, mm-hmm. or the fires happened because of some, you know, problem with the utility company, whatever it is. But it all happened at the same time, at the same place, for the exact same reason. And I used to use that as my circumstantial evidence example, that put it all together, and the only logical conclusion is that Keir Anderson strangled his wife and then no. hung her and dressed her post-killing. the killing.
0: And I, I think as a scientist, we we did do due, due diligence in looking at alternative theories. Right. Like we looked to see if there was paint anywhere else in the house. We looked to see if there was any decomposing type anywhere else. So we, I think, considered the alternatives, considered his story to be correct, and the physical evidence just wasn't there. We went back there the second time for that purpose, right? is to make sure that we had it put together correctly.
2: Fascinating. So, Ruan, the jury convicted him uh, of murder? First-degree murder. Okay. And he's in prison currently? He's in prison. So, uh, fascinating to me. It's it's fascinating, not only because it's circumstantial evidence, but the amount of work that went into it and the uniqueness of the case. But you know, as we kind of wrap it up, um, I'll start with you, Faye, kind of, you know, you've done a lot of cases in your career. Uh, I'm assuming you've done other cases where they were kind of what I would call staged suicide, yes. um, where somebody kills somebody and tries to act like yeah. it's a suicide. I mean, what what do you think is important for the listeners to kind of walk away with in terms of just lessons from this case or realities of this case? Well, you know, th- these kinds of cases are difficult. Because there's
0: so many moving parts, you know, and, and for every event or everything that you see or every piece of evidence, I think you always have to ask the alternative. And the more complete you are in asking those questions and considering them, by the time everything is put together, uh, it becomes a better case. And so, communications, understanding, what the autopsy is, understanding how the investigation is progressing, and what their concerns are, right. understanding what the prosecutor's concerns are as far as proving an uh, uh, an element is absolutely critical. Because if we don't understand what the issue of proof is, or you know what the real question is, right? We may have just done an analysis and have no idea what it means, and we can't testify to what it means. I mean, basically, uh, is out there in kind of limbo by itself, you know, from from the scientist standpoint. So, you know, we can do a much more thorough job in answering questions the broader the uh, perspective is in contrary to the theory that if you know too much, you're biased. Right. Um, But, you know, if you know too much, you can also try to prove the alternative explanation.
2: So I I don't buy into that at all. I just remember, probably a date myself, I think I met you, Faye, probably in the mid-90s, and it was a case in another county rape case, but you were doing some plant work on it, and I'll never forget, you just... The first thing you said is, well, what question are you trying to answer here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's a really important thing. So thank you for that. But Rue, how about you? What do you think you want the listeners to know about this particular case?
1: Well, that as Faye mentioned, you know, we, we needed to answer all of the questions. Um, I didn't mention earlier that it took us nine months to answer all of those questions. We did not rush out and arrest Keir Anderson um, after we found his wife hanging in the garage. Um, it took us nine months to go for Faye to do all of her work, uh, for me to meet with the pathologist numerous times to get those answers uh, from the pathologist. And again, go sift through all of the written evidence we found uh, the journals of both Keir and Jennifer. Um, this case touched me deeply because of who Jennifer was. She was a young lady that, um, had, a, had fairly low self-esteem, um, but a big heart. You could tell by how she raised her kid, how she was treating her children, um, the love she had for her mom and her dad and her brother. And, it, you know, she finally was kind of like, her wings were finally opening up and she was going to be able to move on and get out from under uh, Kier's control. But sadly... Um, that was not to be because he was gonna have if not the last word, the last act. So like he had both. yeah.
2: <laughs> well, thank you both for joining me today., um, fascinating case. Um I always try to kind of end it, and really, you kind of highlighted this is these cases are about human toll of crime. I mean, she had a family and children that are now left behind. So but I thank you for that. Thank you both for your insight. um to our listeners, thank you for joining in. And if you want to find more, you can go to our podcast on InsideCrimeFiles.com. Thank you.
0: Inside the Crime Files is produced by Olos Media in San Diego, California. Olos Media.